Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Step right up and prepare to be unsettled. You've left behind your safe reality and fallen into darkness. There is no escape and there is no reprieve. Welcome to the Simply Scary Podcast, Season 3, Episode 4. I'm Otis Jiry, host of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, and tonight I'll be filling in for GM Danielson. This evening, I'll be your guide through the twisted worlds and disturbed imagination of author Jackson Laughlin and Winnie F. Winters. And for our patrons and season pass holders, we offered twice the terror with an additional pair of tales from Zamil Akhtar and the elusive Pen Phantom 13. So take your seats in our theater of the mind and have your ticket ready as we prepare to dive deep into the dismal depths of depravity. The show is about to begin. In our first tale tonight, from Jackson Laughlin, Roger Hope receives a visit from a coroner who has rather bad news about his dear brother. Unfortunately for Roger, that's only the beginning. I give you, the coroner was wrong. (laughs) 
On March 15th, 2018, I received the phone call that changed my life. It was from a man named Chris Bailey. He told me that he was the duly appointed coroner of Gilliman, Colorado. He said that he had bad news. I'm calling in regard to a Mr. Brian Hope. My brother? Yes, sir. Are you sitting down? Uh, yes. I... We found your brother in his motel room this morning. I regret to inform you that your brother passed away last night. We are still investigating, but the cause of death appears to be natural. Natural? Yes, sir. We have reason to believe he had a heart attack in his sleep. I'm so sorry for your loss. That's what he said. So sorry for your loss. As if sorry made up for it. As if I could forgive him. As if I could forgive the world. Well, I couldn't. I wouldn't. And I still won't. My brother was everything to me. He was my protector. My mentor. My friend. He was just two years older than me. But it always seemed like more than that. Ryan was an old soul. We grew up in Gilliman, Colorado. It was the kind of town that was just small enough for you to recognize everybody else's face, but not small enough for you to know their name. For two precocious young boys, it was a comfortable, if somewhat plain, place to grow up. Our world was one of summer days spent playing in the woods. Winter nights spent hoping for snow days and year-long suburban hijinks. And when I think back to childhood, I remember the good times with my brother. Once, Brian and I were riding Razor scooters down the hill at the bottom of our street and we crashed into one another. Brian had a nasty cut on his forehead, but he still spent the next week pampering me and helping me tend to my road rash. All he cared about was whether I was okay. He was almost like a second father to me. Our actual father disappeared when we were young, under mysterious circumstances. It was very sudden and it threw our family for a loop. Our mom did her best, but she was never cut out for being a single mother. When I was ten, we left Gilliman. After that, we moved across the country a bunch. My mom was always looking for work, mostly because she got fired from every job she had. And she was a little slow and enjoyed her evening martinis a little too much. She used to joke that she shouldn't have taken my father's name. Hope. Because ever since she did, it was the only hope she had left. That joke was pretty funny until I was 13. Around that time, she drank herself stupid and wandered onto a highway in the middle of the night. They said the guy that hit her was high on some manufactured drug. But I don't blame him too much. It was partially her fault for getting plastered and wandering away like that. Still, it was rough after she was gone. Rest in peace, Mom. Hope you're happier now, wherever you are. Shortly after Dr. Bailey called, I received an email containing a copy of Brian's autopsy report. It confirmed what Dr. Bailey suspected. Brian's heart gave out. One too many cheeseburgers, I guess. Brian had certainly put on the pounds in his later years. Work had gotten pretty stressful for him. For both of us, really. Brian's a or was, an editor of the local rag. A paper called the Humboldt Gazette. It's no times, just a mid-sized operation, but he practically carried it on his back. That's why he had gone back to Gilliman. 
He wanted to take a break from the hustle and bustle of the city. He wanted to relax for a while and enjoy the country life. He told me that he had fond memories of the time we spent there as kids. He also told me that Gilliman was a funny place, the kind that always sticks in the back of your head. I always wanted to go back, see the house we lived in when Dad was still around, see if anybody remembers him. That's what Brian said before he booked his plane ticket to fly out there. He didn't say what I knew he meant. He wanted to go back and see if he could find out what happened to Dad. Brian had always said he was curious about it. He always said that it didn't make sense he would just up and leave us like that. Mom hadn't started drinking until after he disappeared. As far as we knew, they had a happy marriage. Mom never made us think differently. It's always bothered me, Roger. Maybe he's still out there. Maybe I could find him. Make him explain why he abandoned us like that. Brian was the most determined man I ever met. After Mom died, Brian took care of me. He dropped out of school so he could work two jobs. I tried to drop out too, but he wouldn't let me. He said I had to make grades so I could get into a good college. So I worked my ass off. I got the grades. I got a good scholarship. Brian was proud as hell of me. The day I got my acceptance letter to NYU, he was so happy. That afternoon, he bought me my first beer and we watched baseball on TV. The Rockies lost, but I'll remember that beer forever. That first beer led me to try a second. And that second led me to a third. And before I knew it, it was finals time for my first semester of college and I was spending every night chugging cheap beer or cheaper whiskey. Brian wrote me letters telling me that he was so proud of me. Telling me that I was going to make the world a better place. Stupid Brian. He didn't even know his brother was a hopeless alcoholic failure. I was too much of a screw-up to pass a single class. I didn't even go to most of my finals. College wasn't right for me. I dropped out after that semester. Brian was mad at first, but I think he realized I just wasn't ready for the real world. We both got jobs. He spent his days at a construction site and I spent my nights as a mall security guard. Neither job was particularly fulfilling. Brian was so exhausted that most nights he passed out in front of the TV as soon as he got home from work. My job wasn't a lot better. Late night security consists mainly of trying not to fall asleep and watching the clock hands traverse their usual path. I spent a lot of those nights writing bad poetry and worse short stories. We lived in a crappy apartment, drank crappier beer, and watched even crappier baseball. Over time, Brian pulled himself together. He got his GED. He got a degree from community college. Then he got a bachelor's from Northwestern in journalism. Brian was a smart son of a gun. He got a big job doing investigative reporting for the Times. I stayed in our small apartment working dead-end jobs and drinking. Sooner or later, we got old. Brian started his own paper with a buddy. They hired me on as a lifestyle journalist. Even if I couldn't make it through a year at NYU, I could still pen a few words about local animal shelters and massage parlors. And after a few years, Brian got tired. You could see it in the bags under his eyes. He had been working so hard for so long. Everybody told him to relax, to take some time off. 
Brian listened. He took that trip to Gilliman. And then I got the call from Dr. Bailey. Just like that, the man who had given me so much was taken away from me. Dr. Bailey said he would arrange for the body to be sent to us in a freezer truck so I could arrange for a proper funeral. Brian's business partner and I made all of the arrangements. Planning a funeral isn't as hard as it used to be. Nowadays, you tell them your price range, they try to make you spend more, you say no thank you, and then you're on your way. I'd be lying if I told you that I was okay. And my stomach still feels like it's full of a hundred twisting worms. It's hard to eat or sleep. I always thought that Brian would be there forever. Suddenly, he isn't there to talk to when I'm bored. There is no one to call when I want to complain about the Rockies or my newest column. I'm alone. Sure, I have friends, but nobody like Brian. His body arrived three days after the coroner called. I saw it myself. We put it in the ground a few days later. Almost a hundred people RSVP'd to the funeral. And the man was beloved by all. I'm sure it was a great service. I didn't go. Because Brian wasn't dead. The night before the funeral, I was working late in the office. Both because I had to make up for all the work Brian wasn't doing anymore, and because if I wasn't working, then I didn't have to go home and face the lonely feeling in my head. Anyway, I was going through the submissions we get from readers. Usually, it's just spam and fan letters from creepy people that have become obsessed with one of our reporters. But this time, I found something unusual. A small white envelope. On the outside of the envelope was black sharpie that read, Roger, the coroner is wrong. I tore it open in an instant. A little strip of paper fell out. There were two sets of characters written on it in a messy script. The first was a web address. The second was a short message. Brian Hope. Gray. 3-15-18. I pulled up the address on my computer immediately. It brought me to a plain black web page with a video player and a preloaded clip. As soon as the website loaded, the video began to play. The footage is approximately three minutes long. It was horrible. I'm going to describe it. But be warned. It is not for the faint of heart. The video is shot in a small, gray room. I wish I could provide more description than that, but I can't. There are no fixtures on the walls. There's something off about the room, though. It's almost like the floors and walls are moving. They look almost like they're made of TV static. Although the room appeared dimly lit, I didn't see any light fixtures. There isn't even a door as far as I could see. There is, however, a table in the middle of the room. The table is covered by a dishwater-colored sheet. Lying on top of that sheet is my brother. He's wearing only a pair of discolored boxer shorts. There are shackles on his wrists and ankles that lead underneath the table, out of view. He's alive. Ah, no more, please. Ah. When the video starts, he's screaming. 
The camera moves towards his chest and you can see that his pale skin is stained with sticky, crimson blood. The video pans over to the source of the blood. It appears the nipple of the left side of his chest has been ripped off. A little bit of it is still hanging from the areola. Brian keeps screaming. The shot cuts out for a second, and then cuts to a figure standing in front of the table. It's standing near his legs and appears to be surveying him. Brian is still screaming. The figure is near silhouetted by the strange lighting in the room. It's hard to make out any of its features. It, it looks just like a gray mass in a loose humanoid shape. As the camera pans past the figure, you can see Brian's hands. They too are bloody, a result of having had most of his fingernails ripped out. There's a loud buzzing noise in the background, like the sound of white noise. The figure holds up an object. Unlike the body of the figure itself, the object is easy to see in the light. It's a hammer. Its tip is covered in dry blood. Brian screams as the figure raises the hammer above its head. The shot cuts out before the hammer collides with Brian's kneecap. The screen stays black for a few seconds and then it cuts to a shot of the wall. This is the shot that made me think it was like static electricity. As the camera pans to the right, it feels like I'm looking at dead air. But then the camera comes to a framed picture. It's not so much hanging from the wall as it's floating in front of it. The framed picture is familiar, although I haven't seen it for almost 15 years. It's a photo of my family. My mom. My dad. Brian and me. All from when I was only two years old. We used to hang this picture above the fireplace. Except the photo has been altered. Someone has scribbled over Brian and my father's faces with a black marker. After a moment of focusing on this photograph, Brian is heard screaming in the background. He yells, Please stop. Somebody help, please. Then, for just a moment, the video cuts to a face. It is entirely gray and expressionless. In that moment, the buzzing noise was deafening. Then the video shut off. As soon as it ended, the website crashed. The link no longer displays the video. Now it just goes to an unowned domain. None of this makes sense. The autopsy report didn't mention any of the injuries depicted in the video. Hell, I saw the body. It wasn't mangled at all. But the person in the video was Brian. I recognized the scar on his forehead from where he fell off his scooter way back when. The date listed on the envelope is from the day Dr. Bailey called me. The body Dr. Bailey sent me isn't my brother. When the coroner called, Brian was still alive. Maybe he still is. Last night I dreamt about the face I saw in the video. 
I dreamt that I was running through the woods I used to play in as a child. I was being chased. When I looked over my shoulder, I saw that face. It was faster than me. It caught me. When its gray hands touched my skin, it felt like my blood was boiling. When I woke up, there was a buzzing in my ears. It sounded just like the noise in the video. Whatever that face is, it was telling me something. I know it was. It was sending me a message with that video. It's telling me that it's time to go back to Gilliman. It's time to go home. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our second story this evening, from author Winnie F. Winters, is not for the faint of heart and concerns a young woman whose powerful bond with her father is strained by the secrets they keep from one another. I give you Daddy's Girl. I've been blessed with a happy childhood. I know this, and I'm not ungrateful. I know others have endured suffering I myself cannot imagine. Hunger, pain, grief. Others have worked far harder for far less and found contentment. I know this. I know all of it. I'm not ungrateful. I've been always my father's daughter daddy's little girl of my mother I remember little only an impression of warmth and a dash of perfume when I was too young to understand she ran away with her accountant and moved across the country to start a new life one without my father and me at first she sent me cards birthday, Christmas even a get well card when I had my tonsils out but gradually they became fewer and farther between until by the time I was in middle school they'd stopped completely by then I didn't mind my mother was more of a figment a fever dream my father was everything to me my father is a hard-working man he works with his hands building houses he built this house my childhood home when I was younger 
He was gone often, out working. We didn't have much money, though I didn't recognize it as poverty until later. Buying other people's clothes at garage sales, their smell still woven into the fabric. Shopping with a grocery list limited to the items covered by EBT. Getting school supplies as birthday presents. I was happy enough, as children are in their ignorant bliss. I didn't know yet what I was missing. But my father wanted more for me. He wanted to give me everything. So he studied in night classes to earn his contractor's license, and he took out a loan against the house he'd built with his own two hands, and he carved out a piece of prosperity for us. He's had his own business for nearly ten years now, and he's known by his peers to be fair and honest. After the first few years of a struggling, fledgling business, things changed. My clothes were new, and only smelled like the lavender fabric softener our new housekeeper used. We bought groceries without looking at the prices, and trips to restaurants, once reserved for special occasions, became a weekend ritual. I moved to a prestigious academy across town, with knee-length skirts in their school uniforms and Ivy League acceptances in every graduating class. Despite all this, my father did his best to keep me from turning out spoiled. There were rules in his house. Not many, but they were ironclad. My father provided for and loved me, and in many ways allowed me to explore and grow independently. All he asked was that I follow his rules, and he never said a rule he didn't explain. My father was a fair man, after all. The earliest rule I remember was that I was not to go in the basement. This was easily enforced, as the basement was locked, and I did not know where he kept the key. The basement was dangerous, he told me, when I, out of childish curiosity, demanded to know why. There were black widows down there, spinning their webs in wait for me, and quite possibly rats, he added, which is why he went down so often to set traps. Rats were also the source of the sounds I sometimes heard coming from beyond the locked door, a faint scratching, and, more rarely, a soft squeak. As I grew up, the rules became less about personal harm. Don't touch the stove, don't run with scissors, and more about personal responsibility. No phone until you finish your homework, no borrowing the car until you've done your chores. I rebelled against these, as all teenagers do, sometimes with scathing judgments only a child can deliver to a parent. My father was patient during these scenes, and waited until I'd worn myself out before explaining. Cecilia, he said, the world is a hard place. It doesn't give handouts. I need to know that when I'm gone, you can take care of yourself. And the only way to do that is to develop self-discipline. You're a smart girl, and you can do anything you could possibly dream of. But you gotta work to get there. Of course, he was right. I knew he was right, however much I resented his pronouncements. But it placed me in good stead. That self-discipline he instilled in me led to a spot on the varsity lacrosse team, where we went to state. It helped me as student body vice president when the president was sidelined with Mono the week before homecoming. And it all seemed to culminate that day when an official-looking envelope arrived in the mail, 
bearing the letter that congratulated me on acceptance to the University of Chicago. He was there for all of that, in ways large and small, and I'd never seen him so proud as the day I'd opened that letter. And, like the stalwart father he is, he was there for the bad things, too. There was only one other rule I was expected to abide by while I was in his house. No boys. Ever. My father was suspicious of friends and male acquaintances, and even disliked my male teachers. Boys have one thing on their mind, sissy. He told me more than once. You can't let them distract you. You've got a future, girl, and you can't let it get away from you. This was partially why he sent me to an all-girls school, to keep me focused on my education. Luckily enough, this rule turned out to be pretty easy to follow. Though I've never gotten up the courage to tell my father that my best friend, Lynn, was actually a lot more. I can't think of what he'd say if he knew what we got up to during our study sleepovers. I think about Lynn a lot, though it's been nearly a year since I've seen her. She ran away from home and no one's heard from her since. It's my fault, really. We hit a rough patch the summer after junior year. She wanted to come out. I didn't. I didn't know what it would do to my dad, and I wasn't willing to risk it. I was scared. She called me a coward, and she was right. So I called her something worse. She insisted on getting out of the car and walking home, and I drove off. And that was the last I saw of her. It wasn't the last I heard of her, though. A few hours later, she tried to call me, but I turned off my phone. I went out with some friends and stayed past curfew. I thought my dad would be livid when I got home, but he was out too, likely on one of the emergencies he got called on sometimes. I passed out on my bed, and it wasn't until the next morning that I heard she was missing. No one knew where she'd gone. The police questioned everyone, including her best friend. I lied to them, said nothing was wrong. I didn't know why she would want to run away. Her family loved her. Her teachers loved her. Everybody loved her. I didn't tell them about the dozens of texts she'd sent begging me to answer or the voicemail her voice broken from crying Cece I'm sorry I shouldn't have pushed you I get that you're scared okay I'm scared too I just want us to be able to live like normal people you know I don't want to hide anymore I love you and I'm tired of acting like it's something to be ashamed of. God damn it, Cece, why won't you answer? I'm coming over, and I'm not leaving until you talk to me. That was a rough time. Back then, I thought I was the reason she left. Now, I know I am. My dad went out tonight, drinking with buddies from work. I have the house to myself. I just printed a paper for school and went into my dad's study to get it. I rarely go in there. It's his man cave, 
and I know he values his privacy. But that's where the printer is. There's also a fax machine and his laptop, and this big cherry wood desk he salvaged. It's a beautiful thing. When I was younger, I used to sit in the big office chair with my feet swinging and trace the grain in the desktop wood. I liked the smell of wax and wood and the way the handles were set with decorative curls. I used to go through all the drawers just for the sake of opening them. Kid stuff. You know you did it too. There was always one drawer, the bottom left, that he kept locked. When I was a kid, this bothered me. I didn't like any secrets except my own. As I got older, I figured it contained something he was embarrassed about. Porno mags was my best guess. And then I forgot about it completely. Tonight, as I took my pages describing the role of light in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, I saw that the drawer was ever so lightly open. Maybe he forgot to lock it. Maybe, trusting me to be the loyal daughter, he stopped bothering. Maybe he wanted me to find it. Though, this last one, I highly doubt. I wouldn't have thought of myself as the snooping type, but there was still a bit of that little girl inside me who wanted to know why. And I thought selfishly that if I had access to my father's secrets, maybe it'd be easier to share my own. So, I opened the drawer. Inside was a camera. An old thing, not even a touchscreen. No streaming, no bells and whistles to speak of. I was a little unnerved. A camera? I'd never seen this camera before. And why one so old? I thought again of pornography, and wondered if I really wanted to look. What if I'd found my father's amateur porno tape? I'd have to blind myself. But, I thought, the weight of my own secrets pressing on me. But if it was... If it was, there'd be no way he could judge me. So I bit the bullet, and I turned it on. There were, indeed, pictures of women. No... Girls. Girls my age. Some even younger. So many girls. So many crying, frightened, screaming girls. I'm not going to tell you what was being done to them. You already know. You've read this story before. I was horrified. But I kept going through the camera... Photo after photo, every image making my stomach royal. You'll wonder why I did it. Why I didn't just drop the damn thing and call the police. I admit, it was a foolish reason, and selfish, but I needed to give it a chance. I needed to know if there was an exception. Just one single photo that showed me something different. Because... The thing that horrified me the most wasn't the blood. It wasn't the contorted figures, or the bodies hanging limply with blank, blank eyes. It was how familiar they all looked, even though I'd never seen them before. The pattern playing over and over through each picture. Straight dark hair cut at the collarbone with blunt bangs, in some cases obviously a wig. 
In others, the hair chopped messily, dye darkening the skin along their hairline. A splash of freckles across the nose, sometimes smudged, as though drawn on. And a small cut, just under the chin, not more than an inch long, right where I have a scar from falling off my bike when I was seven. I was looking at the scene of my death, perverted and parodied, over and over and over, played out with these strangers, these girls, these poor, mutilated, living dolls of me. I don't know how many pictures there are. I didn't get through them all. I couldn't keep going after I got to Lynn. She was wearing the neon eyeshadow I'd gotten her for her birthday. The palette she wore the night we fought. The night she disappeared. Her mascara had run and lipstick was smudged around her mouth. I thought of how she used to kiss me with that mouth. A coat of lipstick freshly applied, leaving an imprint on my own lips when she pulled away. Thought I'd refresh your lipstick, she'd say and laugh like it was the funniest thing in the world. She had the most beautiful laugh, rising and falling like a roller coaster. She was done up the same way as all the others. Her wig was crooked, and the running mascara had ruined the freckles. She must have struggled when he made the cut, because there was more blood than the other photos. She must have fought him hard, just like she wanted to fight the world. I wonder if she cursed my name as he snapped the picture. It's getting late. My dad will be home soon. When he arrives, I'll be waiting for him. I've already gotten the shotgun out of the safe. It's loaded, safety on, resting beside me on the desk while I type this. My father made sure I know how to use it. He wants me to be able to protect myself against a hard, cruel world. A gun is not a toy, he said to me at the shooting range. Don't pick up a weapon unless you intend to use it. He's a wise man, my dad. I'm posting this so that someone, anyone, will know what he's done and what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait for him on the stairs by the front door, shotgun in my lap. I'll keep my hold steady, my finger off the trigger until I'm ready to fire, just like he taught me. You think I'm going to kill him? I can't say that I won't. It depends, I guess, on him. The gun here is less a weapon, and more an incentive. An incentive to fetch the basement key. To unlock that long-forbidden door. To march down into the darkness filled with things so much worse than spiders and rats. An incentive to lock himself into the manacles and chains bolted to the walls and ceiling. An incentive to keep nice and quiet while I review his chest of toys. Leaming and silver and sharp. You're wondering why I'm posting here. Why I haven't called the police. It's because once the police get him, 
He'll be gone for good. And I'll be left with that little girl inside me. That little girl who always wants to know. So I'll allow him this one single chance to tell me why. Then I'll decide. You see? I'm a fair person. I'm my father's daughter, after all. <laughs> Thank you for joining us tonight for the Simply Scary Podcast. If you like what you've heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season, or sign up as a patron for just $5 per month and get access to not just this program, but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases, including premium versions of our other shows, such as Horror Hill and Scary Stories Told in the Dark. (laughs) Not only that, but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help us continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Thank you for your support. This is Otis Jiry, thanking you for being a part of tonight's celebration of the sinister. Don't forget to join us again next week when we once again dive deep into the minds of the most unsettling authors and breathe life into the most unholy of horrors in this, our theater of the mind. Until then, if your lights suddenly go out and you find yourself chilled to the bone, looking over your shoulder, there's no need to run for cover. You may just be experiencing... The Simply Scary Podcast. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Taylor, and you've been listening to The Simply Scary Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was written by Craig Groshek and performed by special guests Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill Podcast, and Otis Jiry, host of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com today to support this program by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to premium extended versions of our episodes, our audio archive, and ad-free downloads of all of your favorite stories, including those you've heard today. The host of the Simply Scary podcast is GM Danielson. 
Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music for the program was produced by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering are overseen by the executive producer and director, Craig Groshek, with production of individual stories by members of our talented sound design team. Artwork for the show's episodes by David Romero. For more information about the authors, performers, and artists involved in the production of this and our other episodes, visit our website today. Got a scary story of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tale considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from us and another episode of this program each and every Tuesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button and tell us how we're doing and leave a comment. Until next week, listeners. Turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.